Thank you for that reading, Carla. There was a lot of flipping there that she managed with not much problem. It was very much debalancing. It's like, do you want me to print it for you? But she went through it. Um, this Sunday is, is sort of a weird pause in our Leviticus series in that, like, I started the first sermon um, that we did after the review of Genesis and Exodus. I said, you know, the, that the Indy 500, when they get there, they put the cars together, and then they go around for a shakedown, and then they all come back in. And that's to see if they put it together right and if the car will drive and not just crash into the wall or stuff like that. And then they took it out after that lap. What I had said that time was I'd like to give a sermon about what does it mean to be Christian readers of Leviticus. But before I do that, I'd like to make sure this car drives. Like, I'd like to make sure I can actually preach on the book of Leviticus because it's, it's, it's different, as we know. Um, and I thought, well, let's see if this thing can actually make it around the track a couple times before we dive into why as Christian readers. And, and to be honest, there was a bit in me that was like, I don't know why, is what it means to be a Christian reader of Leviticus. Um, I think many of us, we come across it in sort of our Bible of the year plans, and we go through it. But to, but to be a reader of it, to, to be one who knows it and studies it and has it, has it speak to them is a different category, right? Um, and so for me, it was like, I also didn't know, I mean, I could look up things to say, um, but I wasn't quite sure what that would mean to me in our congregation until we started to move through the book, uh, started to go with it. And so this Sunday, we're going to take that pause and maybe go back to, like, what does it mean to be a Christian reader of the book of Leviticus? What does it mean to read the book of Leviticus? And one of the things that, that Carla, the readings that we put together there, is situates the book into where it falls sort of in our canon in the Bible, is that at the end of the book of Exodus, God has sort of claimed his people as his own, and they've become sort of his body in the world. He's become the place where he'll reside um, most concentrated with people in, in a religious fear. And so they have this temple, or this tabernacle that they built, but they can't enter it. And so they have this tabernacle that they set up in the wilderness, but they really can't go into it. And then the book of Leviticus starts with that great phrase, and then the Lord called to Moses, and he said, and they bring, this whole book is about that sort of movement from, we can't go into the tabernacle where the holiness of God resides, to how do we live with this God? That's where, where we sort of move in the rest of the Torah, is what does it mean to have this tabernacle, this place of worship with this God? And there, as we have seen, are bumps along the way, Leviticus uh, 8 and 9, where it fills the temple and then the sons offer some improper incense to get burned, and, and there'll be problems in Numbers and Deuteronomy as well. But but this book sort of fills that middle spot of God's holiness has come to reside in you, and yet how are you going to relate to that? How are you going to be with that? Um, and so that's sort of where the book fills. Now, now the banner, which we've talked about before, you know, why Christians read Genesis and the early church, like, if you were an early church theologian and you didn't write a commentary on Genesis, you must have died prematurely because they all write on Genesis. Um, Genesis is a, is a book that we are very comfortable with as Christians for lots of reasons. But then Exodus, you know, we're pretty, pretty confident with Exodus. There's stories in there, and we've seen Charlton Heston and um, the Disney movie, and we've seen those things that make this story plain to us. And it's a, I grew up watching the Ten Commandments on Easter which is like only half the book, which is funny. You know, we're very confident with the first half of the book. The second half of the book sort of falls in the Leviticus category. And then Numbers, I, I'm more worried about Numbers than anything, to be honest. But, but Numbers, <laughs> we're, we, we, we have to read because of that priestly blessing. We all know the priestly blessing from Numbers. So 
Um, and then Deuteronomy has those great passages about choosing life and Shema, um, things that we're familiar with as well. And so Leviticus and Numbers sort of fall in this gray area of like, why? Why would we read them? Why, why would we sit with them? Why would we take those as scripture? Um, what would it mean to really study and dive into those? Because they don't fit on surface level. I think part of the argument we can try to make in the series is well, on surface level, they may not fit the typological story we have sort of gleaned from the New Testament. I think on a deeper level, we find truths there that magnify who Christ is to us. They bring out something deeper about who Jesus is. And so the, the, that image, and you know, my friend joked, you know, most pastors would be somewhat excited about this, but there's three reasons they wouldn't do it. And I was like, what are those three reasons? And he said, Leviticus, uh, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, which was not a reassuring vote of confidence. And so where we are in the book, as you guys are familiar with this graphic by now, is sort of right at that 16, 17 halfway point, which is why I thought it would be good to sort of stop and take a moment to ask, what have we learned from being Christian readers of this book so far? And so uh, Origen, the first great commentator on the book of Leviticus, and then like, so to be fair, it goes Origen and then no one. So the first and one of the only great commentators on the book of Leviticus had, had this to say, if you read people passages from the divine books that are good and clear, they will hear them with great joy, but provide someone a reading from Leviticus, and at once the listener will gag and push it away as if it were some bizarre food. He came, after all, to learn how to honor God, to take in the teachings that concern justice and piety. But instead, he is now hearing about the ritual of bird sacrifices. This is like third century, and many of you could have written this the day we read the story about the bird sacrifices. It's, yes, I came to hear about life and goodness, and yet when I showed up to church, we read about these weird and strange bird sacrifices. This is, this is origin in the third century, naming a complaint. It has pretty much lasted until, it's not going to end with our sermon series on Leviticus. It's going to last for Christians for a, for a long time. So, you know, we come to this place, and we'll return to what, to what Origen sort of says after that. But why read the book of Leviticus? Well, the, the first one is there, why not? Um, this guy, does anybody, this is Marcion. Marcion is one of the first people to be lucky enough to be condemned as a heretic. Um, Marcion says, you know, this God of the Old Testament is not a God we need. So he drops off. And, and the thing about heresy, if you really study it, is heresy does a great job at defining what orthodoxy is. So Marcion is the first one to come up with a canon, a collection of books. His is only 11, and they're all kind of like edited selectively by him. So Paul makes it, but he takes out some stuff. The Gospel of Luke makes it, but he takes out some stuff. And so he has a book of... Uh, Bible. He's the first person to really have this is the Bible as Christians. These are our sacred texts. And he picks 11 of them. Uh, and, and that's him with, with John. And I think my guess is they, when you get condemned as a heretic, they take your face out of pictures. Um, and so that's why his, his face is not preserved well. Um, but uh, And so he has his first canon, which causes the rest of the church to sort of say, well, hold on a second. Let's get together and have some councils to define what we actually want to be our scriptures. And many of the early readers of, of the Bible know that you can't just quite get rid of the Old Testament. You can't just leave it off. But that's Marcion's sort of thing. And so when you hear today somebody say, well, you're acting like Marcionite because you don't want to 
deal with the Old Testament, they're actually referring to this guy who early, early in church history, the first couple centuries, decided that you don't need the Old Testament God. You don't need all those books. And it's weird because what enters through that, this is the other thing, you mainly know him. If I say you're acting like a Marcionite, um, and maybe this only happens to pastors, <laughs> and you aren't familiar with this language, um, you're acting like a knucklehead, um, is, that, um, is that what bleeds into is that he, we talked about bodies last week and how God takes up a body and residence in the world, and how God seems to value that. Well, what happens for Marcion is that one of the reasons he's rejecting the Old Testament, too, is it's too bodily. Um, it's, it's, too, it's too gross. It's too filled with the stuff of life. And so he says that's why we wouldn't need the book of Leviticus either. Like, who wants to read about our bodies as they decay? Shouldn't we just focus on the good things, the positive things, the direction? And so he ends up in that second time, second type of heresy called Gnosticism too, which is a sort of denial of the body as a good thing created and given by God. So that's sort of why not read it. This this is a line from a well-known megachurch pastor this past month, um, and it made big news when he said this. He said, Peter, James, and Paul elected to unhitch the Christian faith from their Jewish scriptures. And my friends, we must as well. Why not read? Why, why shouldn't we read the book of Leviticus? Well, in his mind is, is that if you follow the trajectory of the New Testament, Peter, James, and Paul have elected to unhitch themselves from that. Now, this is a quote out of context and headlines that generated made much out of what he said, but not to pick on the megachurch pastor, but it is a very popular sentiment. It's a sentiment that we've been freed from the Old Testament. Like, why would we go back to that? Why would we? We're not quite Marcy and I. Let's chop off our Bibles, make them simpler so they appease us. But we're more like, oh, that's old stuff that we're not quite bound by anymore. That, that we don't have to look at that anymore. Which, you know, quote out of context, but the Jewish scriptures would take Genesis, Exodus, Isaiah. I'm not sure what exactly he meant by that, but there's so much that's in the New Testament, fulfilled by Christ, from the Jewish scriptures, that you have to have to make sense of this moment. That doesn't quite answer for Leviticus, but it is this sort of like, I think lots of Christians, and as I tell people we're preaching on Leviticus, they're like, why? Um, we've been freed from that. It doesn't speak to us anymore. This is my favorite reason for why we would read the book of Leviticus that I don't think is great. Because it's the Bible, bro. Um, uh, this is the Bible year, Bible in a year plan, which is great. Um, but also, it's, so all scripture is God-breathed, right? It's for teaching, correction, and rebuke, right? Um, and so we read Leviticus because we know that from the New Testament, right? But we don't really read Leviticus. We just pass through Leviticus. We just go through Leviticus. It doesn't come to speak to us. It's, it's because it's the Bible we read it. Um, and it, as, a, as a pastor, we used to sit in an older Bible study I had, and I used to point out, you know, we don't know what to make to some of these things. And there was a, a great lady who was a good friend with a heart of gold. She'd always push back and she'd be like, I read it. I'd be like, yeah, but you read it. But like, tell me what Leviticus 10 means. Like, tell me how that speaks to you. I couldn't do it at the time either. I was just say, you know, we have these portions of scripture that we tend to move through and glaze over. Um, for me, it's numbers more than Leviticus, which is why I'm worried about next summer with numbers more than this. But here's the passage that Jonathan read for us this morning. He said to them, how foolish 
you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in scriptures concerning himself. He begins with Moses. This is that scene on the road to Emmaus, if you're not familiar with it, where after Christ has risen, he comes along two disciples, and they don't recognize him. And they are so, they're going back home, and they're, they're under this mindset that the one who we thought the chosen one has died. And so this, this man that they don't recognize sits and has dinner with them on the side of the road. And he, he opens up the scriptures for them, and he explains to them why this is what was supposed to happen. It says their hearts come alive, and they burn within them. And, 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 and when he breaks the bread, which is this, I would love to look at this scene, he then disappears, and they recognize him as Jesus. And so why read Leviticus? Well, one is because Christ, read, the risen Christ reads Leviticus to his disciples in a way that helps them realize the Son of Man must do all these things. The Son of Man must enter into these things. The risen Christ goes back to the beginning with Moses, which beginning with Moses in the Jewish mindset is the Torah. It's the first five books of the Bible. And so he goes back to the beginning with Moses and opens the scripture up again. It doesn't say Genesis, it doesn't say Exodus, which wouldn't be the title stages anyways, but it says he walks through the scope of the scripture and shows them all how that is concerning himself. So one of the reasons we read Leviticus is to know who Jesus is. We talked about this last week in that what Mary does after Jesus is born is essentially mark Jesus' body with the book of Leviticus. She does the period of, of cleansing required, and then she brings the required off offering and offers it as a sacrifice to sort of show uh, and then gets him circumcised. All acts contained within the book of Leviticus. His body, from the time he is born in Luke, is marked with the book of Leviticus. It's, it's who he is. And so one of the things in, that's helpful, I think, for us is we read law and, and prophets, right? And so when we read Isaiah, not all of it, but let's say 54, one of the more popular passages. And we see clearly how that points to Christ, because it's, let's say, more obvious than other passages, right? What I think, and, and this, this came to me this past week at this conference I was at, somebody pointed this out, is that actually the way that we should read um, even all the Old Testament is as prophecy that points to Christ, which is similar to what you see happening here. And so when you read of the burnt sacrifices, our tendency is to be like, well, in its cultural context, this is what's happening, and then it means this and then this, and then we explain it. And then we never, so it makes sense, right? And I've done, you know, at least half of most of these sermons have been trying to make sense of why these acts and why this is important, right? But the other half of what we've been trying to do through this is to figure out the ways in which it makes Christ present to us. So it's different than reading it as just law. Like, and that's the way that we unfortunately read these portions of scriptures. We just go into the law parts. But what I think a better argument is for, even the law should be read as prophetically pointing towards Christ. Something that's going to be fulfilled in who he is. Something that's going to sort of come into his life. And so even this, this image of the tabernacles. Christ is one who tabernacles amongst us. According to John, we talked about that. 
So even, even Christ's body is this tabernacle that moves throughout the world. It's the place where the holy resides and moves throughout the world. Now, one of the hard things about this is we say that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament law perfectly. Very common, have you heard that, that Jesus fulfills all these things? Or, sorry, fulfills is different. Jesus, Jesus doesn't offend any of these things. Jesus lives a sinless life, we hear often, right? But if you were a first century reader of the law in the book of Leviticus, Jesus all the time is going at least to the edges, if not over the line, and becoming unclean, of doing things that, that, that would be condemned by the law. And so when we say Jesus fulfills the law perfectly, well, it all depends on what you mean by perfectly, right? Uh, if you mean that he, he doesn't touch a corpse, which would make him ritually unclean, he does touch corpses. The, the, un, the, the woman with a hemorrhage, would make him unclean in Mark. And yet, she touches him, and he doesn't go, oh, uh, I've just become ritually unclean, as the Holy One of God residing amongst us. And so, one of the ways in which this works for Christians is, I think, we have, a, we have the same and a, a bit expanded notion of what sin means. We in the world see sin and pollution. Sin as pollution is one of the earlier things we talked about in the book of Leviticus, is it sort of makes us fear which needs to be cleansed by sacrifice. That blood is what opens up that space to sort of cleanse that place, right? That's, that's part of what we know as Christians. So we talk about Jesus' blood in that way. That it opens up the space to cleanse that stuff. And so what happens when Jesus comes among us here and lives as the perfect tabernacle of God, with God residing in him, is it actually works in reverse. Instead of becoming unclean, he makes things clean. That the holiness that resides in him is such, is such that it's not penetrated by that pollution, but it's actually sort of a sphere of cleanliness, going around restoring things. And this is not entirely void of the Old Testament. There's this, there's this image, I think it's in Isaiah, of the stream that flows out of the temple, and it cleanses the nations. That this holiness wasn't meant always to reside in this one spot. It was supposed to be something that went into these people, the, the, the listeners of the book of Leviticus, and made them agents of holiness in the world. And when Christ does that perfectly, which is all depends on what you mean by perfectly, when Christ does that perfectly, he becomes this holiness that's able to go out and to cleanse in his body and in his space and in his time. He goes as one who can bring holiness to those places. And so Jesus becomes sort of this... Um, paradigm of like this one who goes out and cleans the world and cleans things of it. And so this is sort of one of the reasons why we read the book of Leviticus to understand this sort of, this sort of notion, right? To, to understand how Christ is this holy one that goes out and cleanses the world. He's the tabernacle who resides amongst us. He's one who all of scripture is pointing to. And Origen had that phrase that said that all of these sacrifices in some way point to Christ's sacrifice. And so the point that many people you found meaningly last week about the birds, the bird whose blood is, is put on the person cleansed, and, and depending on how you read it, it's almost like the acts of cleansing is going with that blood. And then the other bird that's dipped into it and flies off are perfect examples for who Christ is for us. We see Jesus in that moment. 
is the one who cleanses us, is the one who takes away our afflictions, and the one who also ascends to the heavens. We see Jesus in that movement. So that's one reason. This is this is the reason that that as I was preparing for the book, that's a lot of text on one PowerPoint. Whatever anybody's PowerPoint is bound to be like. If you side note, this is it just came to me and I have to say. If you ever get a chance to see that the just look it up online sometime when you're bored, is the Gettysburg Address as if it were given on PowerPoint. And it's like the things fly into the first four or seven years ago. I mean, it's like what happened? Battlefields how it was. I hope I'm not doing that. Anyways, that made me think of how PowerPoint is more art than people think it is, and I'm not great at that art. Um, this one, as I as we were moving towards Leviticus, I opened a, a file on my computer where I would just dump things that were going to help me preach on Leviticus. This is one that came to me and spoke to me. Uh, it was in a book I was reading, and I didn't know where it would fit in the sermon, so it goes in today, but I think it fits well. And it's just, He's asking a question, what does it mean to talk about how we live a human life from the Bible? Because the Bible contains a bunch of different images of what it means to be human, right? It doesn't contain one single picture of this is the way to be human. It doesn't say that, that you know, you should be like Moses, or you should be like Jonah, or that you should be like... Um, and so the Bible has all these images, and so it's hard to say what are the answers to the moral questions of our day in a book that's pretty chopped up. I mean, there's there's Song of Songs, there's... Uh, Psalms that rage with God. There's the book of Job that raises questions that are largely unanswered. Um, what does it mean? And so the writer Ephraim Bradner says this the Bible, however, does present a single picture, complex though it is, of at least one human life, the image of God that is granted in the creation of Adam, and then presented as the created divine power itself, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. There is, in other words, one life that the Bible presents as whole. In the bits of pieces of the biblical narrative, law and praise, prophecy and warning, or encouragement, are all aspects of this one life. Rather than uh, atomized, is that right? atomized indicators of diverse and specific truths, whose job it is for the readers to organize, order, categorize, and rationalize. The one life that is the Son of God's is the context for understanding Scripture's own discussion of human life. And so that there's a knot in there that's really important, is that these are not meant to be just organized and categorized and made into a ways in which we can understand Jesus. This is the modern sort of reading of scripture conundrum. But what he's proposing here is that actually all of them contain, as hard as it is, aspects of that one life. The book of Leviticus, for this writer, could be called the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Moses as he writes Leviticus. That makes sense. And this is a huge shift, if you think about it. Uh, it's, it's a massive sort of undertaking to say that Christ's one life is the one that stretches from Genesis to Revelation. It's the story of his one life. And our job as Christians as we read the scriptures is to read it almost as the biography of that one wherever we are rather than as bits and pieces that this makes sense for him and this doesn't, this is lower, this is that. It's not an easy task, as we, I found out last Sunday with the childbirth. And, you know, it's not an easy task, but it is perhaps the challenge of the readers of Leviticus and the challenges of the readers of the whole Bible is to see how this one life is preserved across all these pages. 
to see this one life plainly manifest in, in the scriptures. One more quote from Origen and one last observation. What should we do first? Origin. Observation. We'll, do a, we'll end with Origen because we started with Origen. One last observation on, on, on sort of what's going on with the book of Leviticus and why we read it. And I think it's because it's a book of grace and it's a book of life. And, and one of the things that we're being invited to in the book of Leviticus is covenant with God, not contract with God. This is this seems like a small distinction, but I think most of us, and I, whenever I say most of us, I mean myself, either myself in the past or myself when I'm not thinking straight today. So if you're like, not me, great, it's me. I just use most of us instead of blaming myself for everything. Um, at times, we'll think, we think primarily in contract terms, right? So like if I were to rent a house or lease a car and, um, you know, uh, it's a thousand dollars, right? thousand dollars a month to rent which is obviously not in the roaring fork valley anyways it's a thousand dollars a month to rent this place right and i don't say well like should i give more should i offer more like you know if i just give the thousand dollars am i not doing well or if i give less you know this guy will be fine with that right like because it was a hard month and so you get five hundred, right see that's contract right no he wants a thousand dollars he doesn't want $1,500, and he doesn't want $500. He wants me to almost do the bare minimum of things. Now imagine marriage. Marriage is both contract, because of our country, and covenant. Kelly, what are the bare amount of minimum things I can do to continue to get me to love me? Is it $1,000 a month? Is it $500? And so covenant changes things, right? Covenant is different. And this is why the book of Leviticus is so weird, because God says... You know, okay, if you do this, you have to offer a goat. But if you can't afford a goat, and there's a, there's a miracle happening in that phrase. Because what God isn't inviting us into is contract. God's inviting us into covenant. God's inviting us into most like a marriage exchange more than a contract. And so when we read the book of Leviticus quickly, it sounds like a contract. But when you read all these ways in which it can be modified and changed and offered in different ways and can go up and down and sideways, it's almost like a relationship of love that God is inviting us into in the book of Leviticus. It's not a contract where it says, just pay the $1,000 a month and you'll be fine. But it's a covenant that sees who you are in your human particularity and makes space for you to be that so that you can be in, in relationship with this God. It's also why there, it, it has demands, right? There are, there are demands in my marriage that like, I can't cut around. So that there are, there are demands that you can't cut around in there. But its main thing is its wholeness and sort of its covenantness. So we read Leviticus so that we can be invited into this covenant, I think is one of the chief reasons for it. Origin, one last time. Going back to the beginning, um, you know, he, he had said how hard it is for people to read this. And this is a summary of, of where he sort of goes. Origin, Origin realizes the problem. Without the church taking time, the time deliberately to explain the dull details of Jewish sacrificial rites, Sabbaths, and the like, they become but deadly things. Well, one of the reasons we're taking this time is because without us doing this, they become deadly things, right? 
If the Jews' business, let them deal with it, people will say in disgust. So he answers, but begin from the principle that the law is spiritual. Quote from the New Testament. If we are to understand and explain all the lessons that are read, it's the church responsibility to show the people that the dull details are fulfilled with promise. For my part, and because I believe what my Lord Jesus Christ said, is a great way to disagree with someone. Look, for my part, and also because of what the Lord Jesus Christ said, um, <laughs> we just kind of won the argument there. I think there is not a jot or tittle in the law of the prophets that does not contain a mystery. And so for Origen, the reason why he comes around and writes this massive sort of collection of homilies on the book of Leviticus is because it needs to be explained, but it's important enough to do it. And what it does is it opens up for the place of seeing Jesus, in this place where not even the smallest bit is forgotten, but fulfilled through it. And so we read the book of Leviticus to learn about this one life, to, to be invited into the covenant, to, to see how Jesus lives in its pages, even though it's hard to see. So that's sort of where we've been with the book of Leviticus. And going forward, I think the challenge is to keep that in front of us, to keep how is this the story of the one particular life lived in Scripture that's made manifest through its, in its pages through Jesus Christ. Let us pray. God, you call Moses into the tabernacle and give him this book. Give him this collections of sacrifices, collections of holiness codes, collections of, of ways in which we are to be your people. while it's hard for us to see at times how this also means for us to live as your people, it means that you want to be involved in our lives. You care about the smallest details. You proclaimed our bodies as, as involvement in this covenant with you. So through all this, we look for your son in these pages. We look for him so that he might be alive to us and we might see his body there. We ask that as we go forward that we may continue to see where Jesus comes alive to us in this odd and strange book. And that may we be enlightened by you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, to grow in the stature of Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.